The government of Canada and public health experts are taking action to protect Canadians from COVID-19. Protect yourself and others, especially those with medical conditions and older adults. Wash your hands often. Avoid touching your face. Cough or sneeze into your arm and disinfect surfaces. You should also avoid crowded places. Avoid all non-essential travel outside of Canada. And if you're sick, stay home. To learn more, call 1-833-784-4397. A message from the Government of Canada. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Carol Off. Good evening, I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Running out of gas. She's already rationing her supply, and the manager of a Nova Scotia propane company says the rail blockades could force her to shut down altogether. Lost at sea. A volunteer at an emergency distress line received a panicked call from 91 migrants on a boat off the coast of Libya. The rubber dinghy was filling up with water fast. She sounded the alarm, but they haven't been heard from since. As a doctor working in war-torn Syria, he has seen things most people can't even imagine. But what's happening right now has him holding his own children extra close at night. History in the remaking. The Red River expedition was meant to quell a Métis rebellion in what is now Manitoba, but our guest, a Métis man, is retracing that historic journey in the name of reconciliation. Catch of the wrong day, he caught the biggest paddlefish in Oklahoma history. But it doesn't count because of when he caught it. And housing cuts. A new condo tower in New York City is too tall, so a judge ordered the developers to trim 20 stories off the top. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that figures it's going to block somebody's view, no matter how you slice it. The trains still aren't rolling. Today, the Prime Minister held another crisis meeting to talk about the multiple rail blockades by supporters of B.C. Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs. And afterwards, Mr. Trudeau said the government has been patient with protesters, but called for the barricades to come down. In Atlantic Canada, some business owners say it's long past time for action. In Halifax, cargo is piling up and ships are unable to unload. And in rural Nova Scotia, supplies of propane, which is used by a lot of people to heat their homes, is running critically low. Colleen Muse is the office administrator for Royal Propane. We reached her in Digby, Nova Scotia. Colleen, just how dire are things right now with the propane supply in Digby, Nova Scotia? We hit critical levels days ago. Are you rationing that? How are you deciding who gets what? We are targeting only uh, home heating, which that's people that have propane for, that's their sole source of heat. And uh, everybody, you know, has been asked to conserve as, as much as possible. We're still uh, giving out some, but we have to really cut back the amounts. And we can only keep doing that while, while we have propane. What are some of the stories? What is the state for people who, are, who need that propane? I'm thinking about some of the older people in your community. There's thousands in this province that have, you know, solely propane heat, hot water, cooking. There's seniors' homes. There's... Uh, emergency generators, you know, for different locations. We have restaurants, we have fish plants, there's farming, there's production, you know, that use the the cylinders. 
and everybody's hurting. Like, there's already been many layoffs starting. Uh, different places are shutting their doors. If they can't operate or get product in, they can't make any money to pay their people. You know, it's cold down here, right? And you can't heat your house, and pipes are going to freeze. How are they going to be able to afford to fix them? So you have people who are stand a chance of not have being laid off their jobs because their businesses need propane. Then they go home and they haven't got heat to uh, keep warm and keep their pipes from freezing. That's what we're looking at. Yeah, that's that's what's we're very close to that happening. What's keeping up at night? When you think, is there any particular family or or or, or people you know that you think, geez, what's going to happen when we run out of propane? it keeps us up at night i know our our boss is just uh just tore right apart because we can't get any answers on to when it's going to open but i mean we have employees here that have home heat that's you know strictly propane they have small children you know their job and livelihood is here as well uh but there's there's many other places i i worry about the seniors homes you know uh the little old ladies that you know have propane heat and cooking and you know, like, and with the temperatures that we've been having, if they run out and, we, and no one can supply them, like, I just don't understand how a handful of people, how our prime minister can allow a handful of people to hold an entire country hostage. And it just, it makes no sense, you know. I recently got off the phone here a few minutes ago with Stephen McNeil's office, and, you know, I wanted to know why these blockades ain't open. Why aren't they doing anything? Like, And I just keep getting the same, oh, it's almost like a recited script. Oh, well, their agenda, agenda is a peaceful resolution. Well, they're doing these peaceful resolution talks in warm rooms and holding hands and singing Kumbaya is not going to keep people warm and is not going to keep people employed. And you say that you, you, you so you've contacted the premier's office. What is he saying? What, what are well, they I, saying? I contacted the premier's office several days ago. They called back today, which I'm surprised. I know they're getting thousands of calls. I, I got no answers. I wanted to know why our you know that our law enforcement was not enforcing the, the court injunction. You know why are these blockades still up? And, you know, I got the, oh, we're, we're working on, you know, a, a peaceful resolution. Well, is it the prime minister's grandmother that's going to freeze in a, in a senior's home next week if we're out of propane? And when that starts happening, and, well, I mean, we're already seeing the direness of it, but when that starts happening, I don't think you're going to see any kind of peaceful feelings, you know, arise out of the east when, that, when that's happening, especially with the job losses starting now. Okay, so I guess I'll just put to you what the arguments are, that um, that if they do go in and forcibly remove the barricades and the, block, the blockades, then they'll just set them up again. If there is not a resolution to this, that, the, that it just actually just escalates it and you get an even longer blockade for in, in more places. Well, if the blockades are illegal, then they need to be, you know, they need to be taken down. And if they're put up against somewhere else, then those people need to be dealt with, with law enforcement. And they're also saying, the indigenous protesters are saying that it's their right to protest. What do you say to that? I feel very strongly that, yes, it's anybody's right to protest, all right? But it does not give them the right to freeze people or hold an entire country hostage. You know, there's nothing peaceful about what they're doing and what they're doing to the people in the East. What, what is peaceful about letting elderly or kids freeze? 
What is peaceful about mass job losses? What is peop- what's peaceful about people, you know, not being able to make payments or, or mortgages? What, where is peace in that? If you could have Mr. Trudeau in your office right now, what would you say to him? I would probably wrap my fingers around his throat, but I mean, I, I, he needs to do something. He needs to act like a prime minister and not like a juvenile schoolboy. He needs to do something. We've got ships turning away in Halifax because they can't really offload. They're running out of room. They're going to go somewhere else. When that starts happening, how quick do you think those are going to be to come back? Colleen, can I just ask you finally, um, if this does drag on for another week, how will you respond to that? Uh, well, it won't be any peaceful feelings, I can guarantee you that. Um, but, but what will you do? What, what can you possibly do if that's the case? Well, that's the thing. There's the feeling of helplessness. Our boss is, is just reeling in it. I mean, she's doing everything she can to get some in here. But it, like I said, we're at critical levels. We have been for days. And the little bit that comes in... We're going to be running into how do you decide who gets propane and who don't? When you don't have enough to go around, how do you decide who's more deserving of that propane than the other? That, my dear, I can guarantee you, is not a decision I wish for anybody to ever have to make. Colleen, I really appreciate speaking with you. I hope this all gets resolved. Me too. Me too. Thank you very much. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Colleen Muse is the office administrator for Royal Propane. We reached her in Digby, Nova Scotia. Following the Prime Minister's press conference this afternoon, Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs held a press conference of their own. They spent today visiting with Mohawk leadership in Tyendinaga, Ontario, where trains have been blocked for 16 days. They say dialogue remains essential, but that they'll only come to the table when certain demands have been met. Here's Frank Alec, whose hereditary name is Chief Was, speaking in Tyendinaga. Both the Wazudan hereditary chiefs and the Mohawk people of Tiendanega remain deeply concerned by the myriad of laws that Canada has broken, including Wazudan law. The Canadian Constitution, the Supreme Court of Canada, Dalgamuk decision of 1997, UNDRIP, and the Geneva Convention on Genocide. They want to remind Canada and the world that Wazudan land was never ceded or surrendered, and as such, Canada's actions amount to an illegal occupation in Wet'suwet'en territory. They also want to remind the Canadian government that the rail line shutdowns could have been ended many, many days ago if only Canada, BC, CGL, and the RCMP had honored their own laws as well as the respected Wet'suwet'en laws. The Wasurdan hereditary chiefs have put a path of peace forward in order that nation-to-nation discussions with Canada and BC may occur freely and without duress. We demand the remote detachment established by the RCMP on Wasurdan territory without our consent be immediately removed and that the RCMP are completely removed from our territory and cease patrols from our lands. Out means out. We demand that all CGL activities cease within Wet'suwet'en territory while nation-to-nation talks are going as present to the eviction notice that was delivered to them on January 4th, 2020. We commit 
to entering into a nation-nation discussion with Canada and BC once the two above demands are met. That's Wet'suwet'en Hereditary Chief Was, who is also known as Frank Alec, speaking at a press conference today in Tyendinaga. At that same press conference, Seth Laforte, one of the Mohawk demonstrators in Ontario, said, We'll allow trains to pass through our territory once the RCMP have been removed from Wet'suwet'en territory, and that has been confirmed by the hereditary chiefs, and not before then. If the brutal fighting doesn't stop in Idlib, the United Nations said today the rebel-held province in Syria risks becoming a bloodbath. For the people who live there, it already feels that way. They're fleeing their homes en masse, but safety is nowhere to be found. And the impact on children has been devastating. The UN says 60% of the 900,000 residents who fled their homes are children. Many families are sleeping in the open air or in tents in frigid temperatures. And now doctors and NGOs are warning the cold weather is proving fatal, especially for children. We've reached a doctor who works at a hospital in northern Syria near the Turkish border. This month, a father came to his hospital with his infant daughter, and it's a story he can't get out of his mind. We're protecting his last name for his safety. We reached Hussam in Gaziantep, Turkey. Hussam, I know you are seeing a lot of children at the hospital in Idlib, and you have during this latest part of the war. What is the state they're in? In the last two months, most children came to me. Uh, they are uh, so-called. They are homeless. So when you receive a homeless baby or homeless family, and they have uh, no place to live in it, it's uh, normal. Some of them are so sick. There is uh, some children came uh, to me two days ago, they have no food. Two months ago, about uh, 800,000 people are out from their homes. And you can imagine when you have this very big number of people and in this bad weather, mm. it's freezing and it's degree about zero or minus two. When you say 800,000 people, we now know it's 900,000 who are displaced and that the vast majority of those people are women and children and that 60% of those people are just children who are in desperate conditions. That's the reports we have had from the aid agencies. Is that what you're seeing? Yes, 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 it's true, and that's what I'm saying. It's hard to understand with those numbers, but there's one particular story I know that you have about a father and his baby girl. The baby girl was sick. Where were they living when she got sick? They were in a camp near Efrin. It's about five kilometers about uh, Efrin Center. And there is no cars. There is uh, no taxis already in, in this place. And uh, he came about uh, very early, about uh, five o'clock at morning. And, you know, in this time, in this place, there is nothing. And he came walking from his tent to our hospital. 
and carrying the baby with him, right? Yes, he was carrying his baby. He just have a jacket, and his his baby have a very 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 thin cover. I don't know the meaning in English. About one hour or two hours walking with his daughter to reach our hospital. What was he doing to try and keep the baby warm? He just put her baby in his two arms, in his jacket, in his heart. You know, his father, he tried everything to make her warm, but he failed. What was the girl's condition when he arrived at the hospital? She was so cold. Already she she was dead. Nothing I can tell you. Just when we see it, it was very cold. She was opening her eyes. She was have a simple smile. When we heard her heart, he was stopping. She was dead. One hour ago dead. He was carrying her body and he didn't know us. Did he know that she had died? We told him. He carried the baby not knowing the baby had already died. Yes, he was carrying her body. It's very painful. It's very painful for us and for him. Hussam, you have seen so many children die. What is it about this story, this one dad and his little baby, that affected you so much that you wrote about it? I don't know. This special baby, when I see it freezing, and really I hate everything. I hate this word which let her die in these circumstances. I wonder every day why this word let these children die by this way. When we told the, the father that his daughter is dead, he was crying so much. Uh, he held her baby and ran away. We ran after him. He just ran away with his daughter. After two hours, we asked about him. They told us that he's alone, buried his daughter. Just alone. Just he and his, his dead daughter. How does somebody deal with that much grief, Hussam? Really, I don't know. I can't imagine this situation in me or in my daughter. I don't know what he was feeling in that moment when I told him that his daughter is dead. I don't know how all Syrian peoples, how they are feeling, how they are looking to this world. Hussam, how do you continue? You're seeing so many horrible things happening to children. You're a dad, you're a father. How do you deal with it yourself? When I came back from my hospital every night, I put my children around me. I try to tell my children that this world is beautiful. I can't. So just I give them a very big hug every night. Every night I sleep with them. Every night I'm afraid on my baby or my children's because every day I see one of the children is dying in front of me. It's about eight years I am doing this every day, every shift. 
Hussam, you are making a difference. Don't forget that, how important you have been for those you have helped. Nothing nothing changed. Nothing changed. Every day there is children dies. There is women dies. You're doing good work. Remember that. I hope so. Sam, I'm so sorry that this is happening. I'm so grateful that you are there helping those who need help. You are making a difference. I hope so. Good night. Good night. Thank you. Hussam is a doctor in northern Syria, near the Turkish border. We're protecting his full name for his safety. This year, the province of Manitoba will celebrate its 150th anniversary. All kinds of important and influential Manitobans will be honoured. But Armand Jerome wants to make sure the fanfare will include the Métis as well. So he's marking the occasion by going on a heritage ride, recreating what's known as the Red River Expedition. In the spring of 1870, a military force sent by Sir John A. Macdonald travelled across the Dawson Trail to confront the Red River colony led by Louis Riel all of which became a defining moment for the Métis and the creation of Manitoba. Now Mr. Jerome will be traveling across the Dawson Trail, a route built in the 1800s that runs from northwestern Ontario to Winnipeg, and he aims to replicate the journey as accurately as possible, traveling by dog sled and horse-drawn Red River carts. We reached Armand Jerome somewhere on the Dawson Trail in southeastern Manitoba. Armand, how is the trip so far? Oh, it's excellent. The trip went really well. It started out uh, from Kenora, going across Lake of the Woods, very windy. The wind chill was very high, but the dogs were spry, ready to go. And uh, it took something like eight hours to get to the northwest angle, uh, which is actually in Minnesota, where we ended up that night. And then... uh, Yesterday was really good. We went up parts of the of the original Dawson Trail through the bush, and some of it had been open for this trip. I think seven miles worth, so it turned out really well. It was yeah. it was quite the experience. And the dogs are doing well. Oh, yeah, they're doing really well. Yep, and uh, yeah. So today uh, wasn't as long. We uh, had to go down some roads because the Dawson Trail has been actually graveled over. So we didn't have like a nice trail today like what we did the other previous two days. But we're here. How, how much of the Dawson Trail can you actually follow? I mean, you say part of it's been reopened for the purposes of your expedition, but can you actually trace that trail yeah. as it might have been yeah. in 1870? We can trace the whole thing as it was in 1870 on this part. I think as we get closer to Winnipeg, the Dawson Trail will mean they're away a little bit and turn into highways and we're going to stay off of that but on this part we know the Dawson Trail started off in Thunder Bay and it worked its way around through Lake of the Woods towards the northwest angle but we followed the original Dawson Trail already from uh, a couple days ago we've been running along it 
Now, this the the this trail that you're following, and the, and this particular for this particular reason is to follow the the route that that uh, the military, the British troops took in order to get to Fort Garry to suppress Louis Riel and uh, and the, the 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 rebellion that that they they call it, as they call it. We call it resistance. Resistance, and it's been history. They call it rebellion. I and I know that it's it's better known as as a resistance. Uh, yes. The Métis were leading at that time. Why that route? Why do you want to follow the route that the British took? Because I had uh, already known about Manitoba in the year 2020 was going to be our 150th anniversary, and so it was my vision that the Métis. Do not get excluded in the celebrations. Uh, I knew there was going to be celebrations all around the province this year. But uh, I wanted to make sure that the Métis involvement was going to be uh, right up there. Because it was Louis Riel and the Métis that basically named Manitoba and uh, were instrumental in Manitoba becoming the new province of uh, Canada. And the reason why we decided to take the Dawson Trail, was because in all the the, the time that uh, uh, Lou Riel and the Métis had been uh, negotiating Manitoba's entrance, then all of a sudden, shortly after, the government had sent the army to suppress the Métis because of certain negotiations were not being followed. Mm. Uh, Wolseley that used the trail to come this way with the army they had called it the Wolseley Expedition, but they were also calling it the Red River Expedition. And that's where I got the name from. And are, are you thinking about that? As you're on this trail, are you thinking about that, about Colonel Garnett Wolseley, his yes. mission, which was to go and suppress Louis Riel? Are you, is that spirit? Are you picking that up as you, as you make this expedition? Well, exactly, yes. Also, because it's Manitoba's birthday, it's not just for the Métis. It's for whoever lives in Manitoba. And so when we're doing this, we want to express ourselves and we want to celebrate Manitoba's birthday with Métis influence, with our Métis, and also uh, to say happy birthday along with the rest of Manitoba. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think there really is, it, it's, it's possible that, that, that they wouldn't recognize the role that Louis Riel and the Métis played? I mean, that resistance is what led to the Manitoba Act. It led to Manitoba becoming part of Confederation. You say you want to make sure that the Métis are recognized. Do you think otherwise yeah. it would, they, they would not? What I want to do is just to have some Métis input. Because right now, uh, even the, the province isn't working well with the Manitoba Métis Federation on Manitoba's birthday. Uh, obviously, when I started planning this uh, a couple of years ago, I didn't know, you know, what was going to happen. But uh, you see, what I do a lot of times, me and my wife, we go to classrooms and, and we teach how to build red river carts and we basically advertise the culture. So that's what this is about. It, it's not to force anybody to believe in what I, we believe in. What it is is to showcase the culture. We haven't even talked about the rest of your trip, which is going to be in Red River Carts, that you yes. have made yourself. I mean, these extraordinary, these are symbols of Manitoba, these carts with these great big wheels on them. You yes. are going to carry on in horse-drawn Red River Carts until you get yes. to Upper Fort Gary. Yep. 
So now we have to wait till thaw out. So what what we're going to do is uh, on May, on April the 20th, we are going to uh, leave just the town north of here, Haddishville, and we're going to work our way down towards this spot here, catch up to the Dawson Trail, and then we're heading there along the Dawson Trail towards Winnipeg mm. because we have to be at Upper Fort Gary on May the 12th, which is Manitoba's official birthday. Armand, I wish you best of luck. Thank you. Safe travels. Armand Jerome is recreating the Red River Expedition. We reached him on the Dawson Trail in southeastern Manitoba. Their call was panicky. There was shouting and crying in the background. On February 9th, African migrants on a boat in Libyan waters phoned a distress line in England. They told volunteers that rubber boat was quickly filling up with water and that there were 91 people on board. Pieces of a rubber boat have since been found in the Mediterranean, but no signs of any of the migrants. In January alone, volunteers at Alarm Phone have received over 30 such calls. Diana Dadush was one of the volunteers who answered that call on February 9th. She's in Brighton, England. Diana, is there any hope that any of these passengers, 91 people who are on board that boat, any chance that they're still alive? Unfortunately, if the people haven't been uh, rescued, and it doesn't look like they've been rescued, uh, there is uh, no chance that uh, they survived so long at sea. And you haven't found any trace even of the boat at this point? There were uh, traces of uh, boats being found. Uh, Armed forces of Malta told us that they spotted a deflated black rubber boat uh, nearby the position of a distress case we reported. And a fisherman informed us of uh, finding uh, the rests of a boat with uh, floating life jackets and uh, clothes but no bodies have been found yet. Can you tell us about the phone call? This is that you're a volunteer at Alarm Phone, which gets calls from, distress calls from those who are on these these uh, rafts and boats crossing the uh, the Mediterranean trying to get um, to, uh, to Europe. Can you tell us about the last conversation you had with anybody on that boat? The last conversation was about one and a half hour after the first contact. So we've been in contact with them for one and a half hour regularly. In the last minutes, they were calling the alarm phone very often. And uh, they told us that they were uh, in danger, that we had to send rescue for them. At the beginning, they said that uh, water was entering the boat. And later on in the last calls, uh, they said that... uh, Uh, There were people in the water, and then some people had already died. This is at night, is it? Yes, it was at night. We received the first phone call at 3.30 a.m. Central European time, and the last contact was uh, around 6 a.m. We immediately emailed Libyan authorities, and uh, after we emailed uh, also Maltese and Italian authorities, But nobody answered for many hours. They were asking when rescue would arrive. 
And uh, because we didn't manage to get hold of the authorities, we couldn't tell them uh, anything, unfortunately. How do the authorities, and we're talking about a number of different countries here, um, how do they normally respond when you tell them there is a boat in distress? Well, Libyan authorities tend to not pick up the phone and to not answer to our distress calls at all. Italian authorities don't respond to our distress calls if a boat is not within 12 nautical miles from Lampedusa. Maltese authorities uh, in the last months uh, have been delaying rescue for many hours. Sometimes it took 18 hours to reach a boat in distress in Maltese search and rescue zone. If the boat is not uh, in Maltese search and rescue zone, then they do not intervene and they wait for Libyan coast guards, the so-called Libyan coast guards, to intervene. Uh, and, and this is, of course, we have covered many of these situations and know that the authorities are very reluctant um, and sometimes hostile to the idea of helping these people. Um, and so whose responsibility, what, what, what international laws would, um, w- would be in play here as to who should be trying to help these people? Well, according to international law, Everybody should do their best to rescue people in distress at sea. Fortunately, there are uh, NGOs at sea that do the work that authorities do not do. Most of the rescues that happened between January and February 2020 happened because there were uh, NGO vessels at sea. Given the coordinates of this particular vessel giving you this distress, was there anyone in the water? Was it possible that these people's lives could have been saved? Uh, with alarm phone, we also searched for merchant vessels in the area. We could find some of them, but we couldn't see their details. We asked to the Italian authorities to send uh, text to all the boats in the area. But as far as we know, uh, this uh, message has not been relayed. And then, and the other ones that you tried to reach did not respond when you when you tried to contact the other authorities. The first time we got a response was many hours later. Well, it was about five hours after the first distress call. And uh, a a Libyan colonel from the Libyan Navy answered our call, but uh, he said he couldn't uh, organize a search and rescue operation because the the detention centers in Libya are full. And later on in the afternoon, he told us that there were two Libyan vessels searching for the boat. But this was told to us at 15.48 Central European time. How often does this happen? In uh, 2020 only, so January and February, uh, we received uh, about 66 distress calls uh, from the Central Mediterranean only. Luckily, 36 boats were uh, rescued, mostly by the search and rescue NGOs non-governmental organizations, uh, and we believe that about 30 boats were intercepted by the Libyan Coast Guard and brought back to Libya. The people didn't die, but it also means that the people were returned to a war zone, to detention centers where torture, rape, and all kinds of human rights violations happen on a daily basis. And hugely overcrowded, just so many people taken back there. Many have, have noted that the Mediterranean is possibly the biggest grave in all of Europe. How many times do you think you don't even know when some boat has gone down? 
this is <laughs> it's impossible for us to tell because if a boat doesn't call the alarm phone, nobody knows that the boat is in distress at sea. Nobody will ever find out about this boat. There is a huge black hole in the Mediterranean. Diana, I, it's, it's very difficult work you do. Uh, I appreciate that you do it and I appreciate speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you very much for your interest in the case. Good night. Diana Dadush is a volunteer with Alarm Phone. We reached her in Brighton, England. When you're young, it can be hard to believe that things can and will change. Take it from Dara Curley. The 10-year-old Manchester United fan has been despairing at his team's performance of late, particularly against the nearly undefeated Liverpool Football Club. So when the young Mr. Curley was asked to write a letter as part of a school project, he wrote to Liverpool manager Jurgen Klopp and cheekily urged him to let his team lose for once. He didn't expect Mr. Klopp to write back. Mammy was in McFadden's, our local post office, and uh, getting something. And then the owner says, oh, we have a letter for, for you. Uh, I, I was left at home because it's a minute drive away. And um, she comes home, home and she says, oh, Dara, there's a letter for you here. And um, before I open it, I go, it had a Royal Mail stamp on it. And I go, oh, it might be your... Jürgen Klopp and she was Harley and I open it and it was Jürgen Klopp. Oh, that's just incredible. I mean, he's, uh, you know, he, I mean, what's not to love, to be fair to Mr. Klopp? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Have you got, uh, have you got his letter in front of you there? Uh... Yeah, I do. Oh, good lad. Can you, can you, can you, can you read it out for us? Yeah. Go on, Dear Clara. Yeah. Firstly, I would like to thank you for writing to me. I know you did not send me good luck or anything like that, but it is always good to hear from a young football fan no matter what. So I appreciate you getting in touch. Unfortunately, on this occasion, I cannot grant your request. Not through choice anyway. As much as you want Liverpool to lose, it is my job to do everything that I can to help Liverpool to win, as there are millions of people around the world who want that to happen. So I really do not want to let them down. Luckily for you, we have lost games in the past and we will lose games in the future because that's football. The problem is when you're 10 years old, you think that things will always be as they are now. But if there's one thing I can tell you 52 years old, it is that this most definitely isn't the case. Having read your letter though, I think I can safely say that one thing will not change is your passion for football and for your club. Manchester United are lucky to have you. I hope that if we are lucky enough to win more games and maybe even lift some more trophies, you will not be too disappointed. Because although our clubs are great rivals, we also share great respect for one another. This, to me, is what football is all about. Take care and good luck, Jurgen Klopp. That was 10-year-old Dara Curley speaking with BBC Radio 5 from Ireland. The Manchester United fan was blown away when Liverpool Football Club manager Jurgen Klopp replied to his letter. And speaking to reporters today, Mr. Klopp said he doesn't often do that, but he had to make an exception in this case. Cheeky, 10 years old, which I think um, is, uh, is a nice age <laughs> where you should start being cheeky. Um, and it was smart as well. It was just, um, yeah, I thought it's a good idea. Try it. Why not? I've, I've 
think and hope, no, it's a free world, so we can choose our club. I don't think everybody has to be a, a Liverpool fan. I like working for Liverpool and I like the rivalry we have, but I love it even more if we can keep that on the pitch. So apart from that, they can um, be happy and we should be happy and I hope Dara is now happy um, and he looked like on the picture I saw later. So good. Liverpool FC manager Jurgen Klopp, who hopes he made Manchester United fan Dara Curley happy when he responded to his letter. Based on the 10-year-old's reaction, which we just heard, he did. judge in New York has ruled that a 668-foot-tall condo shouldn't be 668 feet tall. The Upper West Side building used a zoning loophole to get approval, which the court ruled should never have been granted. The problem now is that the massive condo has mostly already been built. But according to the judge, that doesn't give the developers a pass. So he has ordered them to lop off 20 completed stories. Olive Freud lives in the neighborhood and has been fighting the condo development. We reached her in New York. Olive, what did you think when you heard what this judge ordered the developers of the condo unit to do? We were ecstatic. <laughs> it's been a while, uh, and uh, it drags on, but we finally got the judge to say the right thing. How advanced is this construction? Well, this, the structure is there. I don't think there's anything on the inside. And how tall is it? Can you just describe what it looks like? It's 668 feet. It's a tall, thin building, and uh, it's uh, near Lincoln Center. The tall buildings there are about 300 uh, feet high, but this really sticks out, honey. It's the tallest building uh, in our neighborhood. Okay, so it's 52 stories tall, right? Yeah. It has to be not. 20 of those stories have to come off. It's not that, that easy to explain. The um, the zoning lot determines square footage that they can build, and this building stands on uh, 10,000 square feet. But when they uh, started building, when they went to the building department with their plans, they came out with 110,000 square feet. So it's uh, and then that's what the lawsuit is about: that it's an illegal zoning lot. You can buy air rights, but you have to buy them right. What was the zoning loophole that they were able to, uh, that they exploited uh, to do this? These people went in and took, picked up, they zigzagged all around the place, uh, picking up, picking up uh, little lawns and pieces here and there. Uh, completely illegal. So they bought the rights based on these little bits of land they had, and then yes, they could they transfer will, it to we this. We call it the uh, 39th side Zoning zoning lot, yeah. <laughs> Gerrymandered zoning lot. Yeah. That was the shape of their zoning lot that they claimed that they had? Yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah. Um, now, and how does it change your neighborhood, this, this construction, this building? Well, it, it, it's, it's, it's a precedent we can't allow. There, there are other developers who are just looking around to see if they can do something like that. Of course, all the developers want tall buildings. Uh, the apartments on top, they sell with views. But what does it do to the people who live below? I mean, it takes, it's taking our space, our sun, our light, 
and they're leaving us in the shadows. It seems, though, that the city approved of it, this 39-sided zoning lot. I mean, so it, it yes, went through legally, right? Very, that's very peculiar. The Department of Buildings, they just, I mean, the developer brings in when they just say yes. Uh, you know, I couldn't imagine how, how could anybody get 668 feet. We had to go to uh, land use people and to lawyers uh, to, uh, to be able to understand how they had done it. Why do you think that the judge sided with you? I mean, this is something they usually say, well, it's too late now, it's been done, you know. And, yeah, that's and, what they always say, right? Uh, that's one of the things that I, I, I hope other people don't uh, go in for this. It's, it's a uh, done deal. If, if it's illegal and it's harmful, the community should get up. Well, we're the first ones that made this noise. That's why it's being, it's being broadcast all over. It's been reported in the New York Times how rare this is, that you have to go back to 1991 where a developer was forced to reduce a 31-story yes, building yes. to 19 yes. stories. So it, not many people do what you and your neighbors no, did. most developers, they make a lot of money here, but they put up legal buildings. And uh, this one was not. It was definitely illegal, the zoning lot. There are, there are other things that are going on now that we're aware of this. Uh, we're looking around and trying to keep making sure that developers put up building according to the law. Do you have any sympathy for these builders at all? Not at all. We started this lawsuit when it was a hole in the ground. They knew that they were going, they, they were on treacherous ground. They knew that there was going to be a lawsuit. They're so arrogant. They thought they were going to win. I guess they win over everything they do here in New York that's been allowed. This, this is something new. No, it's their money and it's our lives, our quality of life. I mean, I like living in the city. I, I love the city, but I, we, have, we have a right to some space and air and light also. What about the people who, I understand, have already bought some of these, these luxury apartments in this building? I, that, I don't uh, really believe that. Huh? I, I hope they're aware now, anyone who wants to put money into this, that uh, things can go wrong. And so these uh, 112 luxury apartments in this unit and a $21 million penthouse that is the very that's top, so that's going to have to come down. Yeah. Do you think somebody bought it? I, I find it hard to believe. But are you worried, though, that, as you say, it's not over? And do you think that another judge will say, well, you know, like all the other times, ah, it's too far gone, let him go? Well, it's, it's illegal. The, law, the, the point of the lawsuit is that he has to have a legal zoning lot. And I don't know how they're going to get past that. Do you think other developers in Manhattan will pause before they try and pull something like this again? I think so. And if we don't win, it means that all over the city, developers can do this. They just, it makes a whole farce of the whole zoning. They go down the sidewalk and pick up another lot someplace else. Olive, I appreciate hearing the story from you. Thank you. All right. Thank you, dear, for calling. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. We reached Olive Freud in New York City, and you can find more on that story on the As It Happens website, cbc.ca slash AIH. Last Friday in Oklahoma, a guy named Justin Hamlin caught an enormous paddlefish. 
If he'd caught it on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, or Sunday, it would have broken the state record. But he hadn't. So it didn't. On Valentine's Day, Mr. Hamlin went out on an Oklahoma lake with a fishing guide who's awesomely named Captain Jeremiah Mefford. At some point, Mr. Hamlin snagged the paddlefish, which looked sort of like a five-foot-long, wide swordfish with a nose like a long, fleshy spatula. After a ten-minute fight, during which Captain Jeremiah Mefford said, I think my heart was close to beating out of my chest, Mr. Hamlin landed it. It weighed just over 71 kilos, which is 157 pounds. That is 25 pounds heavier than Oklahoma's state record paddlefish, which weighed a measly 125 pounds. But Oklahoma has a rule. Quote, any paddlefish caught on a Monday or Friday must be released immediately. Unquote. And the exact days may be arbitrary, but the reason is sound. The state wants to protect paddlefish from overfishing. So... They released it back into the water. As Captain Jeremiah Mefford told the sports website for the win, heartbroken not to have it official, but Justin had a great attitude about it and appreciation for the laws. It was a real TGIF moment for the fish. More of a WTFIF moment for Mr. Hamlin. He must have let his heavy catch go with a heavy heart. And as the two men took the scenic route home, they were up a creek without a paddlefish. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1 and on Sirius XM, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the whole show on the CBC Listen app. Download it for free from the App Store or from Google Play. Thanks for listening. I'm Carol Off. And I'm Chris Houghton. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.